welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Uh, David has a returning guest, David Burns, the author, best-selling author of Feeling Good and Feeling Good Together, uh, back on the show with us to talk about the family and chronic pain. David? Yeah, we had the podcast last week with uh, Dr. Burns. He's a professor of psychiatry for many years at Stanford, and he's still on staff there, um, adjunct clinical faculty. He holds workshops every Tuesday, which I try to go down to whenever I can. And as I mentioned in the prior podcast, he's had a major impact in my life personally through his book called Feeling Good, also his book called 10 Days, 10 Days of Self-Esteem. And I won't go into detail again about the impact that it's had, but his book, Feeling Good, has sold over 6 million copies. It's a book-based cognitive behavioral therapy that's extraordinarily effective. It was that book that broke up my 15-year tailspin out of chronic pain. And so I, I, I'm extremely excited to have David on the podcast today. And we're going to focus today on the family issues. Before I forget, David has a website, feeling, www.feelinggood.com. There's lots of resources on that website. Again, his books, you just have to look up David Burns, and you'll see these best-selling books very easily. And they're still best-selling books uh, many years later. And just a great resource. They're also referenced on my website. Stage one has Feeling Good on it under other resources is called the Feeling Good Together. And the focus of this podcast is gonna be on the family. And what we found out somewhat inadvertently about five years ago is that we can do lots of treatments for chronic pain, but the family triggers are so strong that they win. So we found out what was keeping people in chronic pain dramatically were the family dynamics. We also found out by flipping the paradigm that the family dynamics were an extraordinarily powerful way of pulling people out of pain. But David's perspective on the family dynamics really is unique. This book, Feeling Good Together, I think is a must read for any couple. It changed my, my marriage personally in a, in a dramatic way. And that's what we're going to discuss today. So David, welcome back to the show and very interested in what you have to say about um, Feeling Good Together. What I'd like to start with, by the way, you wrote the book, Feeling Good, but I went to your workshop. You told the story about how you had um, been told by your, asked by your publisher to write a book on couples based on the Feeling Good formula. But I'd love to have you start with that story. Well, after Feeling Good started uh, selling, my editor, who was wonderful, Maria Guarnaschelli, said, you know, we, we need a, another book. And, and I, I said, well, how about uh, a book? I have a book in mind called Couples in Conflict, Couples in Love. And it was going to be kind of using the tools that had been so helpful in depression to, to help people with relationship problems. Uh, b because there, there were some similarities when, when you're depressed, you're saying you get into the distortion, all or nothing thinking, I'm no good. And you get into should statements and self-blame and emotional reasoning. And I feel like I'm a loser, so I must be one. And, and when you have a conflict with a loved one or a friend or colleague, you, you get involved in the same distortions, except you direct it at the other person. He's a bomb. You know, that's uh, right. labeling and Ooh. all he cares about is himself. That's, you know, mind reading, all or nothing thinking. It's a hidden should statement. Uh, and, and so I had the idea that we can use the same techniques that had proven so effective with depression to, to help people change their, their thoughts and self-defeating behaviors when they're in a conflict with, with other people. And I actually drafted the book, sent it to my 
publisher, sent it to Maria. Uh, she, she called the next day with that New York way of talking. Oh, darling, we, we got your book. It's going to be a number one bestseller for sure. Uh, you know, just finish the revision and, you know, we'll send you a, a contract. And they, they sent me a check for $150,000 in advance. Which was a lot of money back then. Yeah, it was mind boggling to, to, right. to me. I couldn't believe it. But I had noticed that I had tried these techniques with several troubled couples I was treating and they would come to the office and I would show them how to develop more loving interactions and then I would give them homework assignments and they'd come back the next week not having done the homework and having spent the week beating each other's brains out <laughs> and coming back just as ticked off as ever. And, and it troubled me because the book read great on paper and it didn't seem to be working in real life situations. And so I called Maria and I, I said, why don't we just delay the release maybe six months so I can get more couples, have more vignettes for, for the book. She said, that's a, that's a good idea. And then six months later, I treated, you know, 30 or maybe even 50 couples with all these techniques. And I'd learned them at workshops. You know, you can have them make lists of loving activities that the other one wants. And then you can do something that your spouse would find loving every day and, and all these things to change your distorted thoughts. And I was like zero for 30 or zero for 50. It hadn't helped a single tr troubled couple. Wow. And it just broke my heart. And I, I called Maria and I said, I don't care if this book is going to be a number one bestseller. And it probably will be, it would be, but it's, it's a fraud. It, it, it's not truthful. It, these techniques actually do not work. And I'm, I'm going to just cancel the contract and send the money back to you. And if I can later on find out the true cause of, of relationship problems and some techniques that are more effective, then maybe I'll take another shot at it. And it, it was, I think, probably at least 35 years before I finally figured it out or felt I had and wrote the book that you so kindly mentioned, F Feeling Good Together, which is the focus is on troubled relationships rather than depression and anxiety. Right. Well, what you found out, you presented this at the workshop that I attended probably all six years ago now, <clears throat> where you pointed out that, first of all, you point out that a lot of couples thought, both houses of couples thought that everything was fine, but a, a high percent of the time, one couple has rid themselves a 10 out of 10 out of satisfaction, and the other half was zero, but the person who was rating it 10 out of 10 thought the other half of the couple was happy. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that's true in troubled couples. It's also true between therapists and their patients that you think you know how the other person is feeling, but, but your, your perceptions of even the people you loved or therapist perceptions of their patients have almost zero accuracy. I, I did a research study at Stanford to see how expert interviewers would do and and after a three-hour interview with uh, over 100, 178 consecutively admitted patients to the inpatient unit and they sat down and talked to them for three hours about their depression and their anxiety and their suicidal urges and everything like that and then at the end of the interview I had them turn their backs on, to each other and the patients filled out my brief mood survey which says how depressed are you at this moment how suicidal are you at this moment? How anxious are you? How angry are you? How did you rate your therapist on empathy and warmth? How did you? How helpful was this therapist? 
and at the same time, the, this expert interviewer filled out the same scale guessing the patient's responses. How, how depressed do you think this person is who you just interviewed about right. depression for three hours? Right. And how anxious and how suicidal. And then I was able to, you know, I put the data in the database and was able to estimate the accuracy of the expert interviewers. And I was shocked that everything was under 10%. Really? Yeah, they couldn't get anything right. The, the accuracy of depression was 3% to detect changes in depression. Wow. The accuracy of suicidal urges was 0%. Wow. The accuracy in detecting anger was was zero percent, and so forth, and and it's the same with with troubled couples. They they actually don't know how how the other person is feeling. You think you know how the other person is feeling, but in most cases, your perceptions are are, are way off base. Do you think it's worse? Okay, let's take a happy couple. <clears throat> um, so let me ask you two questions. So first of all, with troubled couples. I'm assuming the perception's off probably 100% of the time. Pretty close to, yeah. Okay, so let's take a couple that's getting along really well, not having troubles. Do you have any feel, is, is, is it more accurate that people know how each other's feeling or, or people just really don't know how other people feel? Well, what, what, what I saw in my research is that if they're both feeling happy, they're, okay. they're, they're pretty well connected with, with each other, but, but the more they descend into an unhappy relationship, the more inaccurate their perceptions be, become. Okay. And then the other thing that you point out, which I thought was really a huge game changer for me, was that um, if my wife does something that irritates me and triggers me, that I was one that actually started the ballgame. In other words, I acted in a way that caused her to react, and then I get really pissed off. And yeah, so can't quite. I, I get it, sort of. <laughs> it still, yeah. it still feels like her. Yeah, uh, they, that, that's that's hard hard for people to to get. But uh, the uh, what my research showed, and what the whole basis of the interpersonal therapy that I've created, is that we we create our own interpersonal reality at every moment of every day. Oh, say, say that again. We we create our own interpersonal reality at every moment of every day. What, what do you mean by that? Well, right now I'm creating you, and and the David I'm creating is a happy and admiring and fun to interact with David. Okay. Handscum. Okay. And 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 the way I'm doing that is by sh showing respect and admiration for the fantastic things you you've accomplished. You okay. at the same time are creating a really happy and admiring David because you're giving me all kinds of, of, of credit. Right. Uh, but, but also when, when we're involved in a, a hostile conflict with someone, we most of the time feel like victims. Okay. And we're concerned, we're convinced the other person is doing that to us. And so we blame them. Okay and feel like we're right and, and, and they're wrong and, and your whole focus becomes changing the other person or getting back at the other person or, or that type of thing. And I've created a tool that, in, and, and I included it in, in Feeling Good Together and we have an even more powerful version of that tool, but called call the Relationship Journal. And all you have to do to understand everything about any troubled marriage or relationship is to write down one thing the other person said to you and exactly what you said next. And the entire conflict will be embedded in that one problematic exchange. And what you'll discover- I'm sorry, can you say that again? I, I lost Well, let's, let, let's say, uh, let, uh, 
well, I gave a workshop on this in Sacramento for okay. one of the hospitals for the general public, a public service thing. And it was how to, how to you know, get close to the people you love who, who you're not getting along with. And, and I, I had the entire audience. It was in a high school gymnasium and there were a few hundred people there. And, and I said, I want you to, to write down, you know, who is the difficult person in your life and what's one thing they said to you and what exactly did you say next? Because that's all the information we need to diagnose the entire cause of the problem and to prescribe the entire cure for this problem. So, so my wife says something that's upsetting to me, and then I write down what I said next. Yeah. And that's the whole thing? Yeah, you'll, you'll, everything is contained. You don't need any more information. 100% of the conflict and the causes of the conflict is, is embedded uh, in, in that one simple exchange. And so, wow. Um, to give you an example, this, uh, everyone wrote things down. This woman in the front row, she raised her arm and said, would anyone like to tell us who's the troubled person, you, you know, the, who's the difficult person in your life? And she raised her hand and said, oh, oh it's my husband. <laughs> and I came to this workshop, you know, to find out why men are the way they are. Uh, and he, he's constantly criticizing me. Why, why are men like that? And I said, well, scientists haven't yet discovered why men are the way they are or why women are the way they are. But right. if you'll tell me one thing your husband said to you and exactly what you said next, th then we'll see what's happening in, in your marriage. And she said, well, he's been criticizing me all day, every day for the past 35 years. And just last night, he, he, he shouted at me and he said, you never listen. So she had written that down. And I said, now, what exactly did you say next? And she said, oh, oh I, I said nothing and just ignored him. And then the entire audience started laughing and saw <laughs> something that she apparently couldn't see was right. that her response proves that her husband is right. And right. she forces him to keep criticizing her by not listening to, to what he's saying. Wow. That, that's a kindergarten example of a phenomenon that happens every time in, 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 in every troubled relationship. And the part, bad part of it is if you use this approach, it's going to involve the death of your ego because you're going to find out you're actually causing the very problems that are causing you so much pain and, and so much loneliness and anger and, and, and frustration. And it's painful to have to look at that. But if you're willing to, to look at it, it can be empowering because you'll discover you have far more power than you think. Because if you're creating constant problems with one person or with the entire world, you can also change by look, changing yourself, you can develop quickly far more loving re relationships. But, but there is a price to pay and that's the death of the, the self or the ego and the Buddha called that the great death. It's one of the four great deaths actually of, 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 of the self. Okay, what are, the, what are the four great deaths? Oh, the four great, well, there's a great death in recovery from depression okay. and, and that's accepting the fact that you're really not special. We talked okay. on the last podcast, this need to be special, this need, need, need to be perfect and that's actually the cause of our suffering. And when okay. you let go of that need and accept yourself as a, and love yourself as a, a flawed human being, that's when you get joy and enlightenment and depression disappears. Okay. 
the second great death is has to do with anxiety disorders. You're, you're afraid of you have public speaking anxiety. I'm working now with a woman with the fear of flying that goes back to childhood, or or maybe you have pa panic attacks, and and the cure involves confronting and surrendering to the monster that you've been running away from right. your entire life, right. and when you do that you discover the monster has no teeth and you achieve a second form of enlightenment. Okay. The third is the one that we're talking about with relationship problems. The great death involves giving up the idea and discovering that you're not a victim after all, in most cases. Right. You're, you're stimulating the other person. You're provoking them to, to treat them in the very way that you're complaining about, that you're creating that, that, that problem. And, and that's, to me, the most painful of the four great deaths, too. Okay. It, 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 it hurts me when I see how I'm failing other, other people. But if you accept that with humility, you'll, you'll immediately be, be reborn. Your death will lead to a, a rebirth, and you'll be empowered to develop joy and closeness to, to okay. that person and, and to, to many people. And then the fourth great death has to do with recovery from habits and addictions. And the, the, that, that's the craving entitled ego that tells your, you, I'm entitled to get plastered tonight. Gotcha. I had a big day. I'm, I'm entitled to eat this Cinnabon because it'll taste so good, and right. you know it'll it'll it will com comfort me, and uh, and and recovery from all habits and addictions involves letting go of that entitled entitled grasping self that that's looking for immediate pleasure and immediate gratification. Well, I like to talk about a research paper that was a game changer. I read it shortly after I went to your workshop where they did a research paper on 105 couples that one, one half of the couple had chronic pain. And they put monitors on the wrist of, of both halves of the couple. And it happened with every one of the 105 couples. And wow. the person in pain would complain about their pain, grab the knee, grab the neck, grab their back, or grimace and groan. There's a predictably hostile response from the spouse. Yeah. And then what would happen is that the person in pain would have their pain increase for about three hours. Wow. Okay. So we, we know about the neurons that fire together, wire together. We also know when you're triggered, your stress chemicals are elevated, which doubles the nerve conduction. So you do feel the pain more. What was fascinating, this is where your work comes in, is, okay, so I'm in pain, and you're my spouse, and I complain to you. I know you're going to give me a hostile response, but guess what? I keep complaining. That was the fascinating part of the research paper is that the person in pain kept complaining, but that person knew that complaining was actually going to make their pain worse. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? It's fascinating. Can I give you another brief Stanford story? Absolutely. When, when I was a medical student, the only person I really admired and respected, with, and this was my problem, not Stanford's problem, because I was wild and terrible medical student, but I loved Alan Barber. He was the head of outpatient medicine okay. and, and this so-called thick chart clinic. They would send people from all over the Western United States to Stanford when no one could help them with medical testing and diagnoses because they never found anything. And some of the people had chronic dizziness. Tons of them had chronic pain, yeah. uh, chronic fatigue, all these, these things. And Alan Barber, 
who was an internal medicine doctor and a, and a brilliant physician, knew that these people had what I now call the hidden emotion phenomenon, that there was right. something going on in their life that they weren't dealing with, right. and that was actually causing these, these symptoms. And he tried to direct them to, to, to focus on that. And when they did, half the time, the physical symptoms disappeared. The right. same thing I found years later in my research well, once I went in there and the siren uh, came up to the clinic, which was at the front of the Stanford Hospital. I said, why would the, an ambulance come to the medical clinic rather than the emergency room, which is on the other side of the hospital? And they brought in this woman screaming on a gurney, raced her in, and I was assigned as this inept medical student to evaluate this woman who was screaming, demanding emergency surgery. Okay. And the story was that she, uh, let me disguise it a little bit, let's say that she, she had flown in from Canada on a private okay. plane with her husband, okay. and had an ambulance waiting at the airport to, to speed her to, to Stanford to, to okay. for the special treatment. And she, she was screaming and she said, I, I'm in excruciating pain and I need emergency surgery immediately. Okay. And I barely knew how to use my stethoscope, but I started, <laughs> you know, I was very nervous looking through the chart and I, I saw that she'd had seven emergency laparotomies. Really? Yeah. And uh, all they ever found was normal tissue. Okay. Except wow. the first time they found a bullet. A bullet. And, and then the note said that her husband had shot her in the stomach. Okay. So... He's standing right there next to me, and so I started examining her abdomen. You know how you're supposed to see if it's rigid, like right. with a ruptured peritonitis or some such thing? Right. And it was all soft and kind of soggy and felt normal. And then I listened with my stethoscope, and the bowel sound sounded normal. And it didn't, I couldn't see that there was anything wrong with, with her, but she was like screaming. And, and I said, does anything make the, the pain worse? And she said, yes. And I said, does anything make the, the pain better? And she said, yes. And I said, what makes it worse? And she said, being with my husband. <laughs> and I said, does anything be, make it better? She says, not being with my husband. So I turned to him, I said, would you mind just stepping outside for a moment while I finish my examination? And she stepped out and she said, oh, I'm feeling so much better now. Oh, <laughs> I had Dr. Barber come in and check her out and we decided they needed marital therapy and not <laughs> abdominal surgery. But it's exactly what, what you've been saying that, that you know, anger and, and, and hidden feelings that aren't being right. dealt with can, can come out indirectly as anger, and then that can get enmeshed in the uh, conflict between the, the patient and, and other people. And, and the examples you gave, it sounds like people in pain can use their pain as a kind of a weapon in a battle to, to agitate the other person, and then they fight back, and it, right. it's kind of like any other battle, except anger is one of the tools in, in the battle. Well, as you know, again, or pain, I mean, pain is one of the tools in, in the war, yeah. Well, the one block that I find out that people have to getting better is simply their unwillingness to give up their pain or give up their anger because yes. it's, it's powerful, right? Yeah. You know, you have a technique about what are the advantages, what are the advantages of, what is your technique, is a technique of what are the advantages of, of holding on to this belief system, right? Yeah. 
We have a triple paradox that's even better than that now. What are the benefits of the, the anger, say, right. or the pain? Right. So number, the second column is, what does it show about you that's positive and awesome? And the third column is, what are some disadvantages of giving it up and changing? So right. like a triple paradox, you become the voice of the patient's subconscious uh, resistance and, and sell them on all the reasons not to change. That's one mm. of the new techniques we've developed for boosting motivation and reducing resistance. Okay, I was going to go back at that again because it's really critical. So what, again, if a person engages in the tools, whether it's your tools or my tools or both, it doesn't really matter. In other words, right. you and I, I think, have both been pretty clear. My stuff is not the best answer since sliced bread, neither is yours, because Epictetus did this 2,000 years ago. Yeah, right. What you're doing is you're reintroducing people to the concepts of allowing themselves to heal, which means letting go and connecting to who you are, which means feeling vulnerable yeah. When you feel vulnerable, you feel safe. In other words, if you feel safe with uncomfortable sensations, then you are safe. If you're not yeah. afraid of your thoughts and emotions, then you are safe, and it changes the body's chemistry. When they talk about these medically unexplained symptoms, actually irritates me a lot now because they're not—they're completely explained by changes in the body's physiology. Yeah. This is actually high school science class where your body's full of chemicals. You have all these reactions that are physical. And when you're relaxed, your body chemistry changes, you just yeah. feel a lot better, right? This Absolutely. is subtle. And so somehow mainstream medicine has flat out missed this. And you probably know, I actually quit my surgical practice at the peak of my career, because what we're doing now, like this seven laparotomies you just mentioned, is they're actually just calming people down, which dramatically decreases the pain we're doing spine surgery. Yeah, right. So five times every week, I see patients that came in with basically normal spines, horrible personal stresses. And I simply asked the question, what's going on? It took about 90 seconds. And I, I was just talking to my fellows one day. I said, look, this is not so hard. It doesn't take much time. I walked into a couple, very nice, older guy. And I said, you know, sometimes stress in, in personal events can really create change in biochemistry that, that makes pain worse. He says, if anything unusual has happened in the last six months or a year, so he holds up his hand like a gun and pulls the trigger, and he goes, my son. I go, I'm really sorry, because you know, a lot of people have kids that commit suicide. I go, I'm really sorry about this. Can I ask what happened? He said he was murdered. Oh, wow. Turns out his paranoid schizophrenic grandson had murdered his father, which was wow. his son. That's stress. That was the diagnosis. It wasn't neck pain. That yeah. was the diagnosis, right? So... Just that simple question about what's going on, because you don't have to be mentally ill to have situational stresses that are incredibly overwhelming. I mean, people really suffer. Another one, my nurse walked out of the room and goes, you can't, won't believe this. And she goes, this woman with total body pain, her daughter's having a baby. I go, okay, fine. But her husband was the father. Okay, again, that's stress, right? Oh, yeah. So, so the bottom line is that in medicine, we're, we're focused on procedures right now, especially in spine. Yeah. And we're just not listening and actually helping people calm down. And we're not, we're not helping the body's chemistry. Then the, the family dynamics are particularly powerful. And it's clear what I have to do in the podcast on the actual what you do in the family to break the cycle up. But the bottom line is that the deeper your relationships, the deeper the triggers. But, um, Going back to what you just said, we've got a couple more minutes here. I'd like to summarize in a couple minutes if you could. And again, we have to, the details are really, in, in this book, Feeling Good Together is remarkable. 
I am looking at your website myself, looking for resources I can actually recommend to people. But I'm just curious, just to give people a summary of where to start as a couple about looking at these dynamics in an honest way. And I think one of the things, take what things I just heard heard was talk about basically, and I'm gonna try this. What did I, what did my wife say to me that upset me? And what did I say next? Correct yeah. those rituals? Yeah, and what we found is you don't need both people to, in most cases, to repair a troubled marriage. In fact, if I have both couples, I think the people in the troubled relationship, the prognosis is much worse. If one of them refuses to come in, then I say, oh good, I've got a chance because yeah. I can work with one person. The moment that one person changes, the other person will instantly change. Why do you think uh, that? That's fascinating. Well, because when you've got two, they just take turns blaming each other. I got you. And when you've got just one, well, your wife isn't here, Jim. If, if you want to change, I've got some powerful tools uh, to show you how to develop a more loving marriage. But number one, I want to find out, do you want a more loving marriage? And number two, are you willing to pay the price, which is looking at your own role and pinpointing what you're doing that's screwing things up and taking entire responsibility for for change. If, if anyone, if you want to hear a, an actual case live of, of this, one of our podcasts, I don't know which number it is, but it's the treatment of Lee. There's a search function on my website. There's list all the podcasts you can search. And my wonderful colleague, Jill Levitt, and I treated a man live who wanted help with his marital problem. He, he's in London. His name is Lee. And, and he said, oh, David, I, I want some help from you. My, my wife is so bossy and, and she always has to be in control. And I think it's because she had a controlling mother. Could, could you help me by, <laughs> by changing her? And I said, listen, Lee, we'll, we'll, we'll treat you and, and not your wife. And, and if you want treatment, it's gonna be painful for you because you're gonna find out you're forcing her to criticize you. You're forcing her to be controlling. And, and he bravely agreed to it and kindly allowed us to publish this very painful and tearful live work. But when he wrote down one thing his wife said and what he said next, you could see very clearly that he was frightening her and responding in an adversarial way. And she, she was thinking that their daughter might actually be in danger. And when he saw that it was him, not her mother, that was causing her behavior, he began sobbing. Wow, because uh, it's it's the death, the death of the self. But he w he was very brave, and and we showed him how to turn it around, and it, it was a tremendous change there in in a single in a single session, and and then we got some wonderful follow up from him uh, wow. as well. Exactly. But it's it it means looking at your own role. The last thing I wanted to say was when you were talking, it was music to my ears because that's what Alan Barber did, just the same way you do. He, he was a famous physician, you're a famous surgeon, but when he talked to the patients, he says, tell me what's going on in your life. When, when the pain came on, when the dizziness came on eight years ago, where were you? What was happening? He's listening with his stethoscope, pretending to listen to the lungs, but he's asking about the, the human problems. And then the patient, we had one guy who had had eight years of dizziness and he had hundreds of thousands of dollars of workups of his brain and his heart. Right. And we, Dr. Barber said, but do you remember what happened when the dizziness first came on? He says, oh yeah, doc, I can remember. He said, well, what, what was going on? He says, I, I was at my wife's funeral, doc. 
Oh my goodness. And Dr. Barbara said, you, got, you must have grieved tremendously. You say you loved her and she, she died suddenly and unexpectedly. He says, no, no, doc, I, I never grieved. And he's starting to get shaky and tears are coming to his eyes. And Dr. Barbara said, well, why did you never grieve? He says, I didn't know if it was right for a man to cry. Really? And Dr. Barbara says, well, you need to cry. And, and I think that's what you want to do right now. And the man started sobbing. And after a couple minutes, he, 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 he looked up, up to us. He says, he says, God bless you. My dizziness just disappeared. I think I'm cured. Right. And he'd been eight years uh, just getting medical test after medical test, right. prescription after prescription for his dizziness. Well, let me say something I, you, I think you'll agree with, and, and I'm not trying to say this in a negative way, but um, I, I think in terms of neuroplasticity instead of psychology, and yeah. you know, the neurons that fire together, wire together. Right. So you could call it psychological, but the reality is those neurons get connected at that yeah. point in time. Yeah. And again, the current definition of chronic pain, is, is, it, is, it is an embedded memory that becomes connected to more and more life experiences, and the memory can't get erased. And so by becoming aware of what's triggering it makes a huge, huge difference. So we see this all yeah. the time in different forms. Once people can see that connection, it's not psychological because what happens, your body is chronically fired up. Right. She's way off. Your body reacts badly with all these multiple physical symptoms. And so that's not, that's not psychological to me. That's right. And when I, so I'm trying to walk the line personally in this whole project between, because I think psychology has a tremendous role, huge role, but I don't think it's primarily psychological. Is that a fair Absolutely. Thing? It's physical and psychological. In fact, there's a guest chapter in my new book by Professor Mark Noble, a neuroscientist from the University of Rochester and one of the pioneers in stem cell research, a world famous guy. And he's talking about how we're really rewiring the brain when we're using these new uh, super fast psychotherapy techniques. You're, okay. And he talks about how, how the wiring changes. I was editing it, in fact, you know, just before the podcast okay. th this morning. And, and what you say is just, you know, absolutely co correct. And psychotherapy that's just based on talking over and over again, that right. just strengthens these complaining wiring networks that cause depression and anger and, and, and pain. And, and you need to have innovative techniques that can suddenly shift the, the, the wiring in, in, in the brain. Well, I can see this podcast can go on for at least another hour, but I just want to finish up with one metaphor. And then I, would, I still want to, I would encourage you again to go to feelinggood.com look up the resources because they're right there. The book is Feeling Good Together by David Burns. It's also, the other books are adjuncts. Um, I mean, Feeling Good and the Feeling Good Handbook are sort of the same book. I mean, the handbook's a bit more of a workbook. And 10 Days of Self-Esteem, again, those three books are sort yep. of a, a group. Yep. And Feeling Good Together is a remarkable, it's a quick read, it's really remarkable. But I'm now intrigued by actually, do you, on your website, do you have a special section on the family or is it sort of mixed in with the rest of it? No, I don't have a section on the family, but there. if you go to the Feeling Good Together podcast page, okay. it links all of them. And then you can type in a, a search, any search word, and all the podcasts or resources on the website on that topic will come up. Like you can put in pain or uh, 
couples, you know, marital conflict or something like that, and then it'll bring you to the uh, the, the session with Lee, which is actually uh, two consecutive podcasts with, with commentaries, and it really reveals, I think, in clear and convincing way the model uh, that I describe in the book, Feeling Good Together. Well, I came up with the metaphor about six months ago that really has been helpful for me and my patients, but if you're learning a new language like French, you're going to go to class, listen to the tapes with lots of repetition. Let's say, let's say five years from now, you can speak fluent French. Something happened to your brain. Yeah. New connections, new myelin, whatever it is, your brain actually changed so you yeah. can speak French, right? Yeah. You didn't learn French by not speaking English. French right. didn't emerge. You had to decide what you wanted to learn, how you wanted to do it. And so the default language for the human body is basically survival, which is adrenaline, cortisol, histamines. That's the default language. And my concept of neuroplasticity and actually solving chronic pain is learning a new language that I call an enjoyable life, which means create a vision of where you want to go, how you're going to get there. And pain or no pain, you start pursuing that vision. And yeah. The pain pathways less, they start to atrophy. Yeah. So you don't learn. So by trying to fix your pain, you must put your hand right into a hornet's nest. And so what you're doing is that you, as you create your vision of where you want to go and pursue it, your brain starts to change for that. But you didn't learn French by trying to fix your English. And you're not going to learn a new life by trying to fix your pain because your attention's in the wrong direction. Yeah, right. Right. And like, so anyway, that's been a huge metaphor. It's been very helpful for my patient from a neuroplasticity standpoint about what you're trying to do. But you develop like an internal, like a virtual desktop on your computer, developing a part of your nervous system that simply doesn't have pain. Yeah. So anyway, well, thank you again very, very much. And we'll talk again soon. And I appreciate it. Thanks. It's been an honor being on your show. And I just have to admire your, your pioneering and incredibly important work. You're working in an area that has long been near and dear to my heart. I don't often get a chance to talk about it because everyone's into depression and anxiety in my world. But the issue of physical pain is so incredibly important. And you're just moving in the absolute right direction. Yeah. Well, I'm excited because I actually realized you had done as much research and thinking about chronic pain as you have. And I'm, re I'm pretty excited actually to learn more about that. Um, so that'd be great. So anyway, thank you very much. Yeah, have a good one. All right. Well, thank you both for a fascinating uh, exploration of the whole family dynamic of pain. And, and David, thank you for sharing uh, the stories that you with patients and things that you've explored over the years. I think it's been very very helpful for our listeners. And I want to remind everyone to come back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, you can go to www.backincontrol.com for more information. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.